Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 49. Last week, I covered the history of the Egyptian Empire during the first portion of the 27th Dynasty, a time when the country was controlled by the Persian Empire. So to call it the Egyptian Empire, well, that's a bit misleading. But for the Persians, at least at this time, the word empire is used correctly. In the last episode, I covered the Persian leaders from Darius I to Artaxerxes, also spending time on the various satraps who would govern Egypt. Succeeding Artaxerxes was Xerxes II, or as I like to call him, the William Henry Harrison of the Persian Empire. And with that, let's get started. Upon Artaxerxes' death in 425 BC, he would be succeeded by his son, potentially his only son through his royal wife, and this son was Xerxes II, who would rule for an amazingly short 45 days, hence the reference to the shortest-serving U.S. president. But unlike the U.S. president, he would not die of natural causes, but would be assassinated, just like his father and just like his crown prince uncle. If you're getting the feeling that this was a time, place, and culture particularly prone to violence, you'd be correct. But then again, their lust for revenge against the Greeks, the Babylonians, and the insurrecting Egyptians should have made it apparent that violence was an integral part of their culture. Insert cliché concerning what violence begets here. And you're only beginning to see their violent tendencies. But let's get back to their history. With Xerxes number two's six-week rule, there's really nothing to cover in terms of his accomplishments or his impact on Egypt. In fact, given the snail's pace that information traveled in that era, it's almost guaranteed that by the time the Egyptians learned he was their new ruler, he was already dead. Prior to becoming king, he was likely the crown prince, which in Persian society was similar to a regent of ancient Egypt. At a minimum, everyone knew that sooner or later he would be sitting on the throne. Well, almost everyone. There were two potential brothers who also claimed that they had a claim to the throne. The first was Sogdianus, Artaxerxes' son via his concubine, Eloagen of Babylon. The second was Darius II, Artaxerxes' son by his concubine, Cosmartadini of Babylon. And adding to the drama was that Darius II was married to their common half-sister, Perisadnus, who was also the daughter of Artaxerxes through his concubine, Andia of Babylon. I would draw you a family tree, but there would be too many intersecting parallel and overlapping lines. And this isn't merely a footnote. Xerxes II is thought to have been murdered by conspirators acting on behalf of his half-brother Sogdianus' orders. This theory also proposes that he was murdered while drunk. Not that that makes it better or worse, probably just easier. And it would be Sogdianus who would succeed him. How convenient. So, Sogdianus would assume the throne in 424 BC, and with that role came control of Egypt. Remember, we're still on their history. Anyway, Sogdianus would only rule for just over six months before he was captured by another half-brother, this one named Ochus, 
Ochus then promised the now-imprisoned former leader that he would not die by the sword, or by poison, or by starving. Instead, Ochus had his half-brother suffocated in ash. So, he lived up to his promise. And I'm thinking that Sogdinus had wished he had asked his brethren to add a few other prohibited methods to that list. Ochus would assume the throne on his brother's death, and then assume the name Darius II. So to recap, Xerxes was murdered, as was his crown prince, and his captain of the royal bodyguards. Xerxes II was murdered, along with his successor Sogdinus. Violence in a violent society begetting violence. Now, Darius II would break the trend, at least in terms of reign length. He would take the throne in 423 BC and rule for about 19 years. And as a reminder, not only was he the ruler of Persia, but he was also considered the Egyptian pharaoh. Despite the reign lasting nearly a full score, little is known about him. For the first half of his reign, he would avoid conflict with Greece, but in 413 BC, sensing that Athens was both distracted and weak, he ordered a couple of tributary cities in Anatolia to attack the Athenian Greeks. But before doing so, he enlisted the support of Sparta. No sense leaving them on a sideline where they may be recruited by the enemy. Five years later, he would send his son, Cyrus the Younger, to the region to lead the military effort. And that's about it for his history. He would die in 404 BC to be succeeded by his son Artaxerxes II. And just as a reminder, throughout most of Darius II's reign, Egypt was ruled by a satrap named Azames, whom I covered in the last episode. And I say most of his reign because he was not mentioned in any text after 406 BC. Who came after him is currently a mystery. The mysterious gap in rulers would last for about two years, then it was time for something different. The native-born 28th dynasty. And what makes this time different isn't just that Egypt finally gained some independence after 125 years of Persian rule, but also that this dynasty lasted for exactly one ruler and six years. It seems that they had had a bit of a turnover problem. This ruler was Amorteus, and given his native region of Sais, it's possible that he was related to the rulers of the 26th dynasty, the two Samtics and the two Nikos. But that's a bit of speculation. Also speculative, but assumed to be possible, given his name, is that Amorteus was probably the grandson of Amorteus of Sais, who was a partner in the uprising with Inneros, participating in the Egyptian rebellion between 465 and 463 BC. While we know Inaros was exiled to Susa and then executed, the fate of his compatriot is far from clear. Before taking the throne, and in his case, was literally taking it from someone, but before he could do that, Armateus led a revolt against the Persians. It's thought that the rebellion began around 411 BC, and thinking back a minute or two, this was when the Persians were once again involved in a conflict with the Greeks. Amorteus was potentially aware of this and seized the opportunity to stir up trouble. Essentially through guerrilla-style military action in the area of the Western Nile Delta, 
and even more specifically, close to his home city of Sais. The on-again, off-again action would continue for many years, up until the death of Darius II. Upon learning of the Persian king's death, Armateus once again seized the opportunity and declared himself the ruler of Egypt, perhaps attempting to take advantage of the Persian transfer of power. But, in Persia, the transition, unlike many of the far too previous ones, went relatively smoothly, and the next thing you know, Artaxerxes II is in charge, and a bit unhappy with events in Egypt. The new Persian ruler would amass his army in Phoenicia. But then, just as I'm sure Armateus was hoping, internal problems took precedence. Specifically, Artaxerxes' brother, Cyrus the Younger, an accomplished military general, attempted a coup. And Armateus proved that while it's better to be lucky than good, it's best to be both. The Persians' internal troubles bought the Egyptians enough time to get organized and drive the remnants of Persian rule from the country. Well, part of the country. Amartaeus would establish control over the western delta by about 404 BC. But Upper Egypt remained loyal to the Persians, at least until about 401 BC, so three years later. After then, though records and other artifacts are scant, there is evidence that more of the country came under control of this native king. How much and where was the line of demarcation, that's extremely unclear. Then, there's something a bit interesting, maybe related, maybe mythical. But the first century Greek historian Diodorus Siculus wrote that an Egyptian king named Samtik murdered a Greek admiral who had taken refuge in Egypt after the defeat of the rebel Cyrus. The timing of this points to Armateus, as does his theorized lineage. The writing continues to tell of Armateus did the deed on the admiral to curry favor with Artaxerxes II, perhaps hoping to stave off another Persian invasion. He could have also allied with Sparta, hoping the Spartans would send military aid in exchange for Egyptian grain. But whichever it was, it wasn't to last. Another upstart native Egyptian military leader would meet Armateus on the battlefield, where they would fight for control of the country, and Armateus would draw the short straw and end up vanquished and imprisoned. The victor was Nephrite I of Mendes. Now the details on this battle, including the actual date, are few. But an Aramaic papyrus implies that Armateus would be executed in October 399 BC. And just like that, so ended the 28th dynasty and in came the 29th. The new ruler, Nephrites, would move the capital to his hometown of Mendes, which, like Sais, is in Lower Egypt. Like his predecessor, he too would rule for only six years, but he did inherit, well, really win, a country that was somewhat free of outside powers. So, in the long-standing Egyptian tradition, he would embark on domestic construction projects, even expanding the temple at Karnak. But events and territory outside of Egypt was far too much of a temptation for him to resist. In 396 BC, he lent his support to the Spartan king, Achishulaeus, in his war against the Persians. 
The Spartans had recently conquered Cyprus and Rhodes and were now attempting to extend their influence further east. Nephrites sent the Spartans grain and material for 100 warships. But the timing was just a little bit too late, as the food and military supplies reached the Isle of Rhodes just after the Persians retook it. So Nephrites was good, but he was not lucky. The Persians, along with their allies on the other hand, benefited from the timing, seizing everything and putting it to their own use. And that's about it for Nephrites. He reigned until 393 BC, being succeeded by his heir, only identified as his son, but assumed to be Hakor. But Hakor would rule only for a year, before being overthrown by an apparently unrelated usurper, Samuthis. So, to him first, and before you write in, many of these rulers are not related, but they are considered part of the same dynasty. Just recognize, dynasty naming conventions can be a bit fluid. Just go with it. As for this ruler, Samuthis, he's more of an enigma than his predecessors, which is saying a lot. Manetho does mention him, as do other sources, but there is not real agreement over where he falls in the order of rulers. Some have him completely before Hakor, others after, and some have Hakor bookending him. And there could have even been another potential usurper in here at the time, Muthus. It seems many were hungry for a little power. To us, it really doesn't make a difference. And if he ruled, and if it was at this time, it was probably no longer than a year. We do know he existed, and it was likely at this time due to a few inscriptions. And that's it. Harcourt would retake the throne. The how that happened, or why it occurred in the first place, is lost. And to Harcor, it appears he just wanted to forget the whole thing, as his later monuments dated the beginning of his reign to the death of his father, skipping over the usurpers entirely. Harcor would break the tradition of his recent predecessors, adding stability and ruling for an extended period. Relatively extended, in his case 13 years, which to put in the context was over half of the entire 29th dynasty. He would assume the throne around 392 BC and depart about 378. Similar to Nephrite, he would focus internally on construction projects, and I know I've said that many times about many rulers. And when I do, it's not to imply they did nothing else, as they surely did, but we don't know about it, not unless it was written down. The construction projects are different. In the dry desert climate, and since they tended to be made of stone, they lasted, serving as their own testament. So yes, these rulers too, built stuff that lasted. Modern archaeologists have uncovered, identified, and dated it. In Harcourt's case, there would be monuments, temples, and the like in Upper, Middle, and Lower Egypt. Externally, Harcourt emulated Nephrites too perhaps allying with various Greek city-states, maybe even the Athenians. But Egypt would become more and more politically isolated, to the point that the only ally they had left against Persia was Cyprus. The Persians would attack Egypt, 
again in 385 BC, where the two countries would fight on and off for the next three years. Eventually, the Egyptians would drive the Persians out of Africa. The next year, so 381 BC, Harcourt would send grain, gold, and 50 unmanned warships to Cyprus to aid their fight against the Persians. The food and military aid, though, would be cut off the next year. The year after that, the Cyproids would surrender to the Persians. Harcourt would then form an alliance with Sparta and even reach out to Athens, attempting to ally himself out of a Persian invasion. Towards the end of his reign, he was faced with internal strife usually taking the form of riots and typically led by a lad known as Nectanebo. More on this in a minute. This geopolitical maneuvering would continue until his death sometime between 380 and 378 BC. Harcourt was succeeded by his son, Nephrites II, who was the William Henry Harrison of Egypt, ruling for only four months. Some call him an ineffective ruler, and the short reign would certainly lend credence to the adjective. And he really did nothing memorable in that single season. He may have had Egyptian troops participate in Cyprus's war with Persia, but his actual role in the conflict is questionable. After all, he was only on the throne for four months, and it would most likely take longer to assemble the troops and transport them to the battlefield. There are no monuments that bear his name, but Manetho does attest to his short-lived existence. His reign was cut short when he was overthrown and replaced by an army general from Sabinidos, a city in the eastern delta. This leader would become known as Nectanebo I. With Nephrites ousted, so ended the 29th dynasty. And as for Nephrites, he may have been executed, but there's no clear evidence. So, Necton Nebo was an army general who grew up a military brat with his father, Teos, having been an important general of the 29th dynasty. And it's possible that the previous king was his distant cousin, which shouldn't be terribly surprising as they lived near each other and were both well-connected in the ruling class. Despite this possible relationship, Necton Nebo led a coup against the previous leader with possible assistance from the Athenian general Shabrias. Shabrias had previously led Athens to a victory against Sparta and assisted Cyprus in their fights against the Persians. After taking the throne, Noctanebo moved the capital from Mendes to his home city. He ruled rule for about 18 years, with his reign seeing the construction and reconstruction of many monuments, temples, and other projects but the world was becoming much more international and intertwined. So you just have to know, in his nearly two decades, there would be something. And that something reared its ugly head in 374 BC, when the Persians came a-calling, again. And let me pause the podcast for a second. I've had a few people ask why I use the word again, over and over again. Just think of it as shorthand for me saying that history has a way of repeating itself again and again. Unpausing. In 374 BC, Egypt would be invaded by the forces of Artaxerxes II. In his mind, they were still a rebellion Persian province in need of a good smiting. 
and his revenge was six years in the making. Six years to build an army, to manufacture weapons and requisition supplies. You have to hand it to the Persians. If they were anything, they were planners and persistent. Artaxerxes also flexed his diplomatic muscle, pressuring Athens to recall its general, Shabrias, who potentially took troops back to Greece with him. After the general had left, the Persians came across the desert as well as the sea, led by their general, Pharnabisus, along with an Athenian general, Epicrates. Some records indicate that a prince, who would later be known as Artaxerxes III, was part of the military contingent. And you heard correctly, it seems the Athenians may have been playing both sides of the fence. Or they were just hired guns. Or had loose cannons. In this age before gunpowder. So what does six years of preparation get you? For the Persians, over 200,000 troops and 500 ships. And you can bet the force included Hebrew soldiers. The ships would sail up the Nile, adjusting course to avoid Egyptian fortifications. But during their transit and initial fighting, the two commanders of the Persian forces began to trust each other less and less. And this infighting was the probable cause to them not taking Memphis. The Persians were slowed, to the point that the Nile flood season came. They were now literally attempting to sail upstream against a river that floods to multiples of its normal volume. The once distraught Egyptian army seized the momentum and drove the Persians from their country. Once again luck, and this time weather, was on their side. In the years that followed, Nakhtanebo would take a page from the Persians' playbook and seed rebellions in many of the Persian satraps. He would also strengthen his alliances with both Athens and Sparta. And, for him and his legacy at least, this was enough to keep the Persians to their own devices. Nectanebo proved he was a forward thinker in other ways too, this time by looking to the past. He would reinstitute the practice of naming a co-regent by having his son, Teos, serve alongside him, beginning in his 16th year. This would eliminate, or at least minimize, succession problems. Or so he thought. What happened, though, we'll have to wait for the next episode. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week... Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.